Let's pray together before we enter into a time of receiving God's word. Father, please speak to us and give us ears that hear and eyes that see and soft, receptive hearts. Our lives become so hurried and rushed that we can rush through even the most profoundly sacred and important things, and we don't want to rush through any of our worship together, and we definitely don't want to rush through receiving your word. So slow us down now, slow our minds down and help us to focus and slow our hearts down and create space. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. Mold us to be more like Christ as individuals and as a church. Please speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So don't answer out loud, but to get you in the right frame of mind to receive this passage, I want to ask you a rhetorical question. How is your memory? How is your memory? How would your spouse say your memory is? Meredith, often I will see a, a, a look of horror and shock and concern when I've completely forgotten about something that clearly I should remember, a, a lengthy conversation that we had about an important topic. She'll say, remember when we were talking about such and such? And I'll think, I think you might have been talking to somebody else. I don't remember it at all. And, you know, we struggle with our memories, and we struggle to remember. As we get older, it gets harder, so I hear from some of you folks. You know, we've been studying Genesis, we started chapter 4, and we've been moving our way steadily now into the story of Noah and the ark and the great flood and God's judgment against human sin. And Today we reach the very peak of the story. We've been climbing up the front side of it, and we reach the very peak, and what we find there is God remembering. Our first verse of our passage, chapter 8 of Genesis, verse 1, says, But God remembered. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. So here at the very peak of this very important story in the history of God's people is God remembering. Now God remembering in scripture is not the same as the English idea of remembering. When we say remembering, we're thinking of mental recall. And we're bringing to our minds something that had left, something that we might otherwise have forgotten. That's not what it means when it says that God remembered. He didn't remember Noah and the ark like you might remember, oh, I left a pot on the boil in the kitchen. He wasn't busy doing something and thought, oh, shoot, Noah, he's still floating on, in the boat. I better go deal with that. The Hebrew idea of remembering, when it says that God remembered isn't bringing back to mind something previously forgotten. It's God acting on a previous commitment to his people. When the Bible says God remembered, it means that he acted on a previous commitment that he had made to his people. You know, as a father, and one of my kids is still in here with us, the others in children's church, but they would probably agree with this. Um, you know, as a parent, you have many regrets. You're imperfect. You do the best you can, but it's, you know, we're all messed up from sin and we're fallible. And some of the things I regret the most 
are times that I failed to act on a previous commitment that I'd made to my kids. I said at some point, I'm going to do this with you, or I'm going to take you to do this. Not knowing the future, I end up where I can't do it. Uh, Something my children are tired of hearing me say is, I don't know the future. When they want to know, can we do this next week, or can we do this an hour from now? I don't know what's going to be going on an hour from now, so I'm not going to commit to that. (laughs) I don't know. The good thing about God is that he never, ever, ever, ever fails to come through on a commitment that he makes. He always remembers his commitments. He always acts on the previous commitments that he makes with his people. And here we see him demonstrating it by ending the worldwide flood. And we're going to read the story together. We're going to read chapter 8, verses 1, all the way through verse 19. We're just going to sort of take it in. It's a familiar story. But I wonder when's the last time you slowed down and we just read it. So we'll start with verse 1 again. If you were here last week, you remember a key word in the, in the passage just leading up to this at the end of chapter 7 was the word prevail. Over and over again, God, through his inspired word, says that the floodwaters prevailed. They prevailed. They continued to prevail, which means triumph. They rose and rose and rose until they had conquered everything and everyone, every living thing on earth. Key words in the section we're going to read now are subside, recede, and abate. And these are different ways of saying the opposite of prevailing. The water had risen and now it's going down. Let's read verses 1 through 5 to begin. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So just as we saw the waters rise, filling the valleys, covering the low-lying hills, covering the mountaintops, now we see it begin to recede. The mountaintops become visible first, and then the higher hills, then the lower hills, and then the valleys. It's all drying out. God is taking away the flood that he brought about. Now, as we continue to move through the story, it's been moving really fast. It's covering periods of time, like 150 days in just a couple of verses. And then in verses 6 through 12, everything slows down slows down and focuses on Noah and a bunch of birds. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. 
He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. Now, in ancient Hebrew scripture, the pace of events and, and what receives the most focused verses tends to be what God wants to emphasize to us. But I have to say, I'm really not clear on what he wants to emphasize to us with these birds. Uh, I feel like I need to dwell on it for a minute because his scripture dwells on it for a minute. Uh, there's different ideas. For one thing, apparently, I'm no bird expert, but I've been reading this week. Apparently, ravens will just eat just about anything, and they would eat carrion or corpses. And so perhaps Noah sent out the raven first to just see what is going on out there. Is it dead bodies everywhere? And the raven never returned. So the thought is perhaps the raven could just land on one floating dead body and sustain itself and fly to another. It's a grim reminder of the dark reality of the flood, of what happened, and the death toll. But none of that's described in Scripture, and we're, all, we're just sort of trying to understand why is this here. Then he sends out this series of doves, and I've read different possibilities as to what's going on with these doves. Uh, perhaps the doves were more valley birds, and so he would know when the doves found a place to rest or found like the olive leaf that not only were the mountains clear of water, but also the valleys and the flood indeed was completely ended. I also read that doves are homebodies. You know, apparently if you release a flock of doves at your wedding or something, they'll fly around and eventually they'll fly back to their homes. I guess that's true. I never really knew that. So one theory is perhaps he, re- he released the dove thinking the dove's going to go back to my home place to the home place where I gathered it, and I'll know if my home place is dried out. We don't know. I'm sorry, I don't know. Uh, It's interesting to think about. Uh, You can talk about it further with your house-to-house groups. What I do know is that as we move into verses 13 through 19, we just see the process continuing to unfold, the ending of the flood, the continuation of his recreation after he had destroyed his original creation. Let's read verses 13 and on. In the 600th year, I'm sorry, in the 601st year, in the first month, first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird Everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. If you think back to Genesis 1, you'll see a lot of similarities in sequence and language to what happens here in Genesis chapter 8. 
In Genesis 1, God's Spirit hovered over the waters. That word spirit is the exact same word used for wind here at the beginning of chapter 8. God sent a wind to blow over the surfaces of the waters. In Genesis chapter 1, he orchestrated the waters in such a way as to to create the sky and then dry ground. Here in Genesis chapter 8, we see him reestablishing a dry sky and dry ground. Genesis chapter 1, he creates birds to fill the sky. Genesis chapter 8, he sends birds back out into the sky. Genesis chapter 1, he called living creatures into existence. Genesis chapter 8, he calls living creatures back out of the ark to continue their existence, to be fruitful and multiply and scatter across the face of the earth. God recreates what he destroyed. God remembered his commitment to Noah. God demonstrated his remembering by ending the flood. And what I want to do now is take a step back from being in the midst of the text and just point out and notice that not only did God remember his commitment to Noah, not only did God demonstrate it by the flood, but God saw to it that the historical record of his remembering was recorded in Scripture. Now, I've got this chart up here. Uh, I don't often hit you with charts on a Sunday morning, but I wanted you to see this. Um, Actually, just a minute before I get to that. I want you to think about two things. First, how this was written. Do you know who wrote this? What human author wrote it? We're never told explicitly, but all signs point to Moses. Now, we know Moses was a great prophet, one of the very greatest prophets. That's how the Bible talks about him. But as he writes this account, he's not writing as a prophet. He's writing as a historian. You don't see, thus saith the Lord, a whole lot in the account. What you see instead are verses like these. I'm going to share a couple of the specific verses with you. You see verse 4. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest. This precision of dates. You see verses like 13 and 14. In the sixth hundredth and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And then verse 14. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. So Moses is operating in historian mode. And what God has preserved for us here is history. Now, think about when this was written. Do you know when the book of Genesis was written? Well, again, we're not told explicitly, but all signs point to it having been written after the great exodus from Egypt before entering the promised land. So if you'll remember your ancient Israelite history. Some of you might remember it better than others, but God chose a man named Abram and made this grand promise to him that he was going to create a nation out of him, and he was going to establish him and this growing nation that was going to be God's special people in the promised land. Now, during the time after that promise, the Israelite people, Abraham's offspring, found themselves enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And then God, through these miraculous signs, brought them out of Egypt, 
And then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And all signs point to this having been written, this history recorded for God's people during that time. A slave nation after 400 years of wondering, is God going to come through for us? As they prepared to try to conquer the promised land. A land full of armies, a land full of strong people who had many gods that they relied on. What they needed during that time was assurance that their God would do what he said. And if you could put yourselves in their sandals, I think you could imagine how they might question it. Is God really going to do what he says? If, if we go into battle against these people to try to take their land, is God really going to do what he has said he's going to do? And so God inspires this historical record to be put down and given to his people, yes, I always come through on what I say I'm going to do. I always remember. And just as I remembered Noah, my commitments to him, I remember you and my commitments to you. And I always act on my previously made commitments. And I never fail. We have in this scripture a history of God's remembering so that future generations would remember that God remembers. And now we get to the chart. I just want to show you the way the passage is laid out because I think it's really, really awesome. Now, it goes further than this, but this is what I could fit on a legible chart for you to see. The way the Noah's Ark story is structured in terms of literature all builds to chapter 8, verse 1. It is the linchpin. It is the centerpiece. It's the point of the story. God remembers. And you can see the parallels. It begins, at least with what I can show you right now, entering the ark, and then correspondingly, after God remembering, they exit the ark. The flood begins, ends. The waters prevail, waters subside. And that structure continues on out from the very beginning of the story to the very end. So if you were to plot it out on this, this chart for the whole thing, it would all point to this. God remembers. God remembers. And God's people need to remember that God remembers. And the message for us this morning from this text is remember, God remembers. Even in great upheaval, remember that God remembers. I mean, think of what it was like to have been Noah. Living in a comprehensively evil and wicked world, as corrupt as it could get, and then God floods and destroys it all. Think of the upheaval to Noah's life that he experienced during that. And he had to trust in the Lord, that the Lord was going to do what he said. As he constructed the ark, he needed to trust in the Lord that he was going to do what he said he would do. Think about Israel receiving this historical record en route to the promised land. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt, it was 40 years of grumbling and griping and complaining and revisionist history, thinking it was better for us back in Egypt. Ahead of them, having to face the armies of the promised land that they were supposed to conquer. And they needed to remember that God remembers. They needed to know that God does what he says he's going to do. Even in great upheaval, we can remember that God remembers. 
even in times of long waiting, we can remember that God remembers. I want to point out one other element of this passage, one other structural element. If we go to the next thing, is you notice how much different time frames play into the story? And again, it follows that same uh, beautiful pattern. But for Noah, there was a week of waiting for the flood, and then another week of waiting for the flood, and then 40 days of just watching while the flooding took place, and then 150 days of the water remaining on the earth, and then another 40 days waiting, watching the waters recede, and then as he sent out birds, seven days of waiting for the dry ground, and then another seven days of waiting for the dry ground. If all that were to take place, if we were to wait that long for something the Lord is doing in our life to happen right now, it would be next summer before the whole cycle was completed. And that's not a tremendously long amount of time, but I think it's interesting how that's sewn into the fabric of the passage. A lot of waiting and watching. What if, what if we have to wait like Israel had to wait, though? Forty years in the wilderness. Think about that. God miraculously brings them out of Egypt. Finally, they're going to receive the promised land. But there's a 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness. I haven't even been alive for 40 years. I'm 35. My entire lifespan will be swallowed up by that 40 years of waiting. You know, where were you 40 years ago? Where will you be in 40 years? Could you trust in the Lord that he will come through and what he has said if you have to wait 40 years? That thing you're praying about right now, that thing that you're agonizing over right now, and you're waiting for the Lord to answer, what if he waits 40 years? In 40 years, I was thinking this through, I'll be 75, Lillian will be 48, Elias will be 51. I mean, could I, could I trust in the Lord if it took him that long to answer some of my prayers? Could I wait until 2057? Now, what about Israel while they were enslaved in Egypt? 400 years. Could we remain faithful and trust in the Lord that he will act on what he says if he doesn't act for another 400 years? If we're not going to see it in our lifetime at all? If he's up to something on the grand scheme of human history that's so far above and beyond the little thing we're so focused on that we don't ever see it in our life, could we be at peace? Could we find contentment in him? Could we have the joy of our salvation? If it was going to be the year 2417 before he acted on his previous commitment. Paul says in one of his letters that he had learned the secret of contentment and he could be happy with a lot or a little. He could be happy in any circumstance because through Jesus Christ, he had been reconciled to God the Father. We've got to learn that secret of contentment in the midst of, of the upheaval, in the middle of the meantime, waiting for him to come through. Because God's time frame is not our time frame. 
We've got to learn the secret of contentment and be able to feel just as secure knowing that God will do fill-in-the-blank as we would if it was during the time that God is doing fill-in-the-blank. We can't base our security based on God answering our prayers right this second. We can't question everything about him if he's not answering our prayers right this minute. That's not how he has ever operated, and we have his history recorded to teach us that. So if being a happy and content Christian requires God instantly answering my prayers, something is wrong with the way I'm approaching this. My contentment in Christ just comes from knowing him, knowing his character, knowing that he never lets down his commitments. And the reason he delays is probably something I don't understand. Perhaps like an Israelite in the middle of the 400 years. Can we trust God like that? That's what he's calling us to trust him like as Christians. So what are some of the things that God has promised us? I just have an assortment, just a handful in the New Testament, it says that no matter how many promises God has made, they're all yes in Christ. So in other words, in Christ, God's promises for you are every bit as secure as his promises were for Noah's family on the ark. You know, they got in on Noah's ticket, and all of God's promises to Noah were yes for them because they were with Noah. So in Christ, all of God's promises are yes for you in Christ. You could be the biggest jerk in the world right now. Your sanctification could still be at the very beginning. You could have kicked a kitten across the street this morning on the way to church. But if you are humbly and repentantly trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and following him as your Lord, if you're connected to Jesus Christ in him, all of God's promises are yes for you because you're in Christ. So here's some of the promises. God promised salvation to all who believe in his Son. God promised that all things will work out for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. God has promised to conform you to the image of Christ, even if through suffering. God has promised to comfort you in your trials. God has promised new life in Christ. God has promised every spiritual blessing in Christ. God has promised to finish the work that he started in you. God has promised to supply your needs. God has promised you rest if you'll trust in him. God has promised abundant life to those who follow Jesus Christ. He has promised eternal life to those who trust in Jesus Christ. He has promised his disciples power from on high through the Holy Spirit. And he has promised that Jesus will return for his people. God remembered his commitment to Noah. He demonstrated it by ending the flood. And then he saw to it that it was recorded in the history of his holy scripture so that future generations of his people would remember that he remembers and would never forget that he never forgets. And the message for us that we can trust him. We must trust him. Even in great upheaval, 
And even in long, prolonged periods of waiting, we can trust him. You can be content right now. You can be at peace and whole in Jesus Christ right now. You can have the joy of your salvation right now. Even though there's so many things up in the air, so many areas of confusion, so many doorways of suffering, you don't have to wait for all that to be resolved. Root your hearts down into who God is for you through Jesus Christ. And you'll be okay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are and for bringing us into relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for not abandoning us, but through your mercy and grace forgiving us, cleansing us. Help us to trust you right now with whatever the thing is that we're wrestling with. Help us to trust you even in the midst of it. In Jesus' name, amen.